The children may now be dismissed. And as they are, I want to remind you that after the service today is our church-wide business meeting, our annual meeting. Um, if at all possible, we need every member to stay so that we can have a quorum and so that we can have our business meeting. Um, last time, we actually came close to not being able to. So uh, please stay. It should be a fairly simple, straightforward one. It shouldn't take too long. And I will try not to preach too long and go over. So I hope that you can all stay. Um, today, we are going to be in Mark chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 9 through 11. If you want to find those in your Bible, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. These verses portray sort of the kickoff of Jesus' public ministry. He would have been, at this time, probably around 30 years old, which is really strange for me. I'm 31 now, and it's the first time that I've ever... I've always thought of Jesus as being older than me. You know, I know it's, it's weird to even think of Jesus in terms of age because, you know, he has been from all eternity. But uh, when he began his public ministry, he was about 30. Uh, so he was a year younger than I am right now. And that's about the, the age he would have been in these verses we're going to read. It's the only time we see Jesus and John the Baptist together in Scripture. Uh, they were actually cousins. They were together in the womb. Remember when John leapt for joy when, in uh, Elizabeth's womb when Mary came? But otherwise, we never see them together except for right here. Mark is, Mark is an interesting gospel because he's so minimalistic. Uh, the detail is sparse, but the detail that he does includes really packs a punch. So I'd like for us to pray and ask for God to help us while we study his word, and then we'll read this passage and, and launch into other passages this morning. Would you bow with me? Father, before I begin doing a whole lot of talking, I think we need to just quietly come before you in prayer. To just be still and remember that you are God. Help us to remember. Help us to remember that these are your words. I think it's good for me to confess in front of your people and you that I am incapable of bringing about any spiritual change in my own heart or in their heart, that all the power is in your word, in the gospel, in the Holy Spirit's work, in Jesus Christ. Lord, would you please, Darren, these few moments together, looking into your word together, would you please exalt your son's name? in our heart. Please do a work deeper than just surface level encouragement or comfort or practical tips for life, but do that deeper work where we behold Jesus Christ and believe in him more deeply than we ever have before. Glorify your son's name during this time, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read together. You can remain seated. Let's read together Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. In those days, during the time that John was baptizing, what we talked about last week, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee 
and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, the first question that may come to your mind at this passage is probably the first question that came to my mind, which is, why is Jesus being baptized? We all understand baptism to be about repenting from sin and being cleansed from sin. Why is Jesus being baptized? Well, that's not what Mark focuses on here. So I'm not going to endeavor to, to really answer that. I will give you a hint. Go read Matthew's account of this. And John basically asks Jesus the same question, and Jesus gives him a really interesting answer. So go read that sometime. But I'm not going to try to answer that this morning because that's not what Mark focuses on. So what I want us to do is to focus on the main idea of this specific passage. The Holy Spirit led Mark to record this specifically for a reason. And it seems to me that his focus is on that last verse, the heavenly voice that says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, I want to tell you why I think that we should lean in and really pay attention to this verse. The Bible teaches that both your soul's fate and the quality of your everyday life depends on your understanding of and belief in the son. The Bible teaches that all your loved ones, think, picture the people you love most in this world. The Bible teaches that the way they view and understand and believe in the son of God affects every aspect of their life, including their fate for all eternity. So this is crucially important. We've got to pay attention to this. Remember, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So he had already been crucified with Christ. He'd already been changed by Jesus, and Christ was already living in him. But the life that he was now living still had to be lived by faith in the Son of God, by faith in Christ. Everyday Christian living requires everyday Christian faith in the Son of God. So even if you've been in church for 75 years and you've heard this about Jesus all your life, you need it. You need it. And it's going to become clear as I go on why you need it. My prayer as I've been studying this is that we would today and all Christmas truly behold the Son and truly believe in the Son. Truly, let May that be what this Christmas is about. So let's talk about beholding the sun first. Back to the passage, it says, And when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So try to really imagine it. It's easy to let scripture sort of pass over our minds and we miss how bizarre it is. Try to picture this. John is out there in the Jordan. Jesus wades out to him. They interact a little bit. Maybe you're in the crowd and you're a little ways off. You can't actually hear what they're saying. John finally baptizes Jesus. And then suddenly the skies rip open. 
what in the world must that have looked like? I, I picture Independence Day. You remember that movie when the, the alien ship burst through the uh, atmosphere? I don't, maybe something like that. I have no idea. The heavens ripped open. And then something descends down from this opening in the heavens. And whatever this looked like, it descends down. It's not like a lightning bolt, violent. It's graceful and gentle like a dove, something. Something that at least many people identifiably thought, that's the spirit of God. What did that look like? No clue. But it descends down and rests upon Jesus. And then there's a voice. And I believe everyone heard the voice. Uh, just trust me on it. I don't, have, I don't want to go through all the reasons why I believe it. I believe everybody heard it. It probably sounded like thunder because there's another time in Scripture where they heard the voice and it sounded like thunder. This voice booms out. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Is that not bizarre? What we believe is bizarre. And that is bizarre. God has done so many things through his spirit and through his voice invisibly and silently. Why did he do such a bizarre, spectacular thing in this instance? If you're a Christian, you have the spirit in you. And when you feel conviction of sin, that's the Holy Spirit. But I bet you have never seen the skies ripped open and the spirit come down and land on you and say, hey, you shouldn't be doing that sin. And then back up into the heavens. Usually God does it invisibly. You know, you've heard the word many times, if, if nothing else, just while I'm up here preaching. But what you heard when I read that was just my little voice. But God has spoken to you. The Father has spoken, but I thought you've ever heard it thunder down from the heavens. Why did he make it visible this time? Why did he make it audible this time? Well, something similar happened in John twelve twenty-eight through 30. Let me read that to you. Jesus was praying to the Father and he said, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. And listen to what Jesus said. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Jesus didn't need to hear the Father's thundering voice. It was for the sake of the crowds. God wanted the people around to hear this, get a glimpse into this conversation. So you have to remember, this is happening, happening in a very Jewish context, and the Jews had been waiting for a Messiah for a long, long time, generations and generations and generations. And, and they would have remembered prophecies from the Old Testament, like Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, and Isaiah 42, 1. Those say, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Or behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. See, they would have remembered these prophecies. So the descent of the spirit was not this random supernatural phenomenon. It was a giant puzzle piece snapping into place. It it meant to everyone around the shoot from the stump of Jesse, the branch from his roots, God's special chosen servant, the long-awaited Messiah had finally come. 
It was for the sake of the people within earshot that God spoke audibly and sent the Spirit visibly. He wanted them to believe this is the Son of God. And he wants us to believe this is the Son of God. This was certainly the case for John, just to nail this down and prove it in case you guys are thinking he doesn't know what he's talking about. In John 1, 32-34, it says, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is it. This is him. Now, the reason this is important to you and me, many people celebrate many different things at Christmas, and many church people celebrate many different things every Sunday morning. We need to be clear on who Jesus is. Jesus is more than some historical figure. He's more than a role model. He's more than a good moral teacher. He is the son of God. Again, let the bizarreness of that statement settle in. This is a big deal. The son of God. I want to read you something that C.S. Lewis wrote, because I'm just not as smart as C.S. Lewis. You should read C.S. Lewis. Even if you're not a reader, he's brilliant. If I could think as brilliantly as C.S. Lewis for just five minutes every day, there's no telling what I could accomplish. I would, I, would, I would make it happen in the morning, right after I got my coffee, probably when I was reading my Bible so I could think real well about it. I would love to be able to think with his clarity, just a little bit. But he wrote a book called Mere Christianity. It's actually the first book that I ever voluntarily read. Uh, I used to work at Sears and Monroe at the Monroe Mall, and during break I would be bored this is before you know people had iPhones and stuff, which I still don't. But And I walked down to the Walden Books, and that looked pretty interesting, so I bought it, and I started reading it in my car. And I still have it. It's all marked up and highlighted. It's a great book. Um, some of you think that you're not readers, but I think you just haven't found your book yet. You just haven't found what sparks your interest. Um, that began my journey of nerddom, was his book. And this is from his book. And it's about what we're talking about. And I couldn't think of a way to say it any better than him. So I'm going to let him talk to you right now. He wrote, For when you get down to it, is not the popular idea of Christianity simply this, that Jesus Christ was a great moral teacher, and that if only we took his advice, we might be able to establish a better social order and avoid another war. Now, mind you, that is quite true but it tells you much less than the whole truth about Christianity and it has no practical importance at all. It is quite true that if we took Christ's advice, we should soon be living in a happier world. You need not even go as far as Christ. If we did all that Plato or Aristotle or Confucius told us, we should get on a great deal better than we do. And so what? We never have followed the advice of the great teachers. Why are we more likely to begin now? Why are we likely to begin now? I already read that. Because Christ is, see, I can't even read as well as he can write. Because Christ is the best moral teacher, but that makes it even less likely that we shall follow. If we cannot take the elementary lessons, is it likely we're going to take the most advanced one? 
If Christianity only means one more bit of good advice, then Christianity is of no importance. I'm going to read that one again on purpose. If Christianity only means one more bit of good advice, then Christianity is of no importance. There has been no lack of good advice for the last 4,000 years. A bit more makes no difference. But as soon as you look at any real Christian writings, you find that they are talking about something quite different from this popular religion. They say that Christ is the Son of God. Saying that Christ is the Son of God is way different from many of the popular conceptions of Jesus Christ. So this Christmas, let's behold Christ with fresh eyes. See that he is absolutely unique, absolutely powerful, the Son of God. And in light of these things, we need to ask ourselves one really important question. Okay, we've been beholding the Son of God. Now, I need to ask you a very important question. I need you to really consider it. Do you believe the Son of God? Do you believe? Do you believe him? If he was just a great historical figure, like Abraham Lincoln, the only question we would need to ask ourselves is, do we properly revere his legacy? Do we properly respect who he was and what he did? If he was just a really good role model, the only question we would need to ask ourselves is, do we properly respect him as such and maybe try to emulate him a little bit? If he was just a really good moral teacher, the only question we need to ask ourselves is, are we trying to work in some of his life lessons into our life? Are we trying to live by his tips and tricks of the trade? But since he claims to be the son of God, we have to ask, do we believe It would be completely ridiculous to revere or emulate or follow the teachings of someone who claimed to be the son of God if he was not the son of God. It would be insanity. Imagine that you come across some really good self-help guru. He's written books that just blow your mind with all the practical teachings that are so helpful about finances and uh, family relations and emotional stuff. And he has a TV show um, super helpful, practical. You're telling everybody about him. You should check this guy out. He's, he's a really good teacher. But then you come to find out he thinks he's a unicorn. Is that not a deal breaker? Does that not negate all these seemingly wise teachings? He thinks he's a mythical creature. Delusion is a deal breaker. Jesus said he was the son of God. So if we don't believe he's the son of God, we need to just discard him and stop pretending. Now, if we do believe that he is the son of God, it affects everything. If we truly believe that he is the son of God, we must revere, emulate, and listen to him. And beyond that, entrust ourselves to him. That's what I mean by belief. Belief that Jesus is the son of God is different from belief that, say, Vladimir Putin is the president of Russia. Okay? Believing that Vladimir Putin is the president of Russia has no real effect on your day-to-day life. Who cares? But belief that Jesus Christ is the son of God 
affects everything. See, he's over there. Vladimir, it doesn't matter to me. But if Jesus is the Son of God, if what he taught is true, I have to give my life to him. And I have to trust him completely. To believe in the Son of God is to trust him more fully than you trust any other human being on earth. To believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is to trust him more fully than any other human being on earth. More fully than your spouse. More fully than your parents. More fully than your most uh, trusted confidant. More fully than yourself. Because are you the Son of God? No, he is. I would trust him over you if he really is the son of God. I would trust him over myself. Believing that he is the son of God is, means recognizing his authority above all other authorities, all governmental authorities, all, um, all experts, all the writers of the self-help books, all uh, the people you know, and yourself. He is a higher authority even than yourself, over yourself. Let me give you six implications of belief in the Son of God. And that's how I'm going to bring this to a close. Number one, to believe in the Son of God is to take his promises as facts. Now, that's a, that is a very important statement. If we believe that he is the Son of God, then we can take his promises as facts, not just hopes. Facts, even a promise like Matthew six thirty three: seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. And he's referring to food and clothes and all the practical details of life. All these things will be added to you. That's a fact if he is the son of God. Number two, to believe in the son of God is to be freed from condemnation. John three eighteen says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So for those of us who are wearily walking along under a heavy load of guilt and shame and condemnation, if he truly is the Son of God, if you believe him, removed. Number three, to believe in the Son of God is to have true, abundant life. John 20, 31 says, But these, referring to the signs of Jesus, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So those of us who are crawling along in the darkness of just depression and just a sort of a walking dead kind of life, The Son of God is the source of life. Number four, to believe in the Son of God is to overcome the world. Listen to 1 John 5, 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So you who are plagued by the world and the temptations of the world and just the corruption of the world, belief in the Son of God is the path to overcoming it. Number five, to believe in the Son of God is to live in concrete confidence in your eternal security. 
Listen to 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. So you who live under the fear of death, we're all advancing toward it one step at a time. Belief in the Son of God equals confidence in eternal life. Number six, to believe in the Son of God is to rest in his wise and loving answer to every single prayer you pray. This comes from 1 John 5, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So we can know that if he is the son of God, that if we pray to him and he hears us because we're not asking for you know, our, our own blimp or something ridiculous, but we're asking for things in accordance with his will, like free me from this sin or help me to, to experience the, the peace and joy of the fruit of the spirit or one of my prayers lately, add to our number those who are being saved. We can know that he hears us and that his answer is going to be perfectly wise, perfectly prudent, exactly what is right. What confidence. This Christmas, let's celebrate Christ. And let's celebrate him not just as the cuddly baby in the manger, but as the very son of God. And there's no better way to celebrate him than to behold him and to believe him. So let's pray for God to work that out in our lives this Christmas together right now. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you made it crystal clear that he is your son. Please clarify our image of him in our minds and in our hearts. Help us to see him for who he is as the son of God. Help us to believe him. To believe him in such a way that that trust infiltrates every aspect, every corner of our lives. Lord, you know what each individual sitting here needs right now. You know where we struggle to believe. You know where we have drifted away and stopped paying attention to what we've heard about Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would do the thousand different things that we need you to do in our hearts and in our lives and in our church right now. In Jesus' name, amen.